Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Today we'll be taking a look at racially motivated jury selection, bias in peremptory challenges, but we'll be going beyond the so-called Batson rule established by the Supreme Court. We'll take a look at the obligations of attorneys under the rules of professional conduct. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by an ethics expert, Professor Peter Joy of Washington University Law School in St. Louis. Professor Joy, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Maybe let's set the stage a bit with the history of racial selection of juries. At some point, African-Americans weren't allowed on juries. Uh, Maybe you could trace a little bit of the, the roots. First of all, we have the extremely sad and tragic history of slavery in our country. So throughout that entire period of time, by law, African-Americans weren't allowed to be on juries. So legally, they were excluded. Then after the Civil War, that legal exclusion still continued until Congress adopted Civil Rights Act in 1875 that prohibited keeping people off the jury because of their race. Then after that, now it's no longer legal, but there were other ways that in many states or counties in certain states, African-Americans were kept off juries. The most common way was a lot of juries were selected by people who were registered to vote. And until the 1960s, efforts that in many states that made it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to even become registered to vote, then some jurisdictions adopted rules like they only chose jurors from prominent members of the community, and they all turned out to be white individuals. So, you know, I could go on with some other examples, but I think that gives you just kind of a sense of how resistant in a lot of parts of the country the system itself was to having diverse juries. You point to something that I'm sure many of our viewers would be surprised with, which is there's no uniform way of selecting jurors. I mean, for most of us, we we think of, of jury duty and democratic elections as duties, responsibilities of U.S. citizens. Are they rights as well? They are, but they're rights that get defined in large part by either state law or in some instances by local officials in how they administer it. So uh, you mentioned the fact that the jury pools, the people who are eligible to sit on a jury, in most places today, They're drawn from a combination of people who are registered to vote, individuals who have driver's license or state-issued IDs, and there still is a fairly large part of the population who are neither registered to vote or have some kind of uh, recognized ID issued to them. So that group of people will be excluded unless local officials take some extra steps to try to get them included into the jury pool. Let's talk a bit about jury selection. Generally speaking, there are two ways to remove jurors. One is 
for cause. And I suppose that's that's when the judge asks questions like, does anyone know the defendant or the prosecutor? That's right. A lot of times the for cause are sorted out by the trial judge even before the prosecutor and the defense get to ask questions. But also, the prosecutor and the defense can probe deeper with their questions for the people remaining in the jury pool and sometimes un- uncover a bias that the judge failed to uncover. So sometimes the judge will say, the example that you use, does anyone know the prosecutor or anybody in the prosecutor's office? Everybody shakes their head no. Does anybody know the defense lawyer or members of the defense lawyer's firm? Everybody shakes their head no. But then later, the prosecutor may ask, you know, has anybody formed an opinion about whether police should be believed or not? And somebody might raise their hand and, and says, I don't trust police. And if the prosecutor has police officer as a witness, that prosecutor is going to try to have the person excused for cause. Uh, and the same goes for the defense. Like an example might be the judge asked about knowing either the prosecutor trying the case or people in the prosecutor's office, but the judge is unlikely to ask about, does anybody here have any relationship with anybody else that's a prosecutor? And a defense lawyer would ask that question, and a juror might raise their hand and say, yes, my father is a prosecutor in another city. And the argument being, if your father was a prosecutor, perhaps you have an inherent bias towards trusting prosecutors. Well, that's right. To actually get them excluded for cause, the defense lawyer would have to develop that and basically have the person show some hesitancy about being able to be fair and unbiased and not favor the prosecution of the case. And for one of these exclusions for cause, there the judge has to determine, yes, this makes sense, this juror ostensibly couldn't be fair? Yep, that's absolutely right. You make the case and then the judge makes the decision. And contrast that for us with peremptory challenges, and perhaps maybe you can explain where they came from. Well, peremptory challenges have existed in the system as long as there have been juries, as far as I know. And Basically, what they are are challenges where you really don't even have to state a reason. And in most instances, when either a prosecutor or defense lawyer in a criminal case exercise a peremptory challenge, they don't even have to give a reason. It could be any reason. It could just be you don't like the way somebody looked at you, or maybe they were frowning or they were smiling and it made you feel uncomfortable. Or if you're the defense lawyer, it makes your client feel uncomfortable about that individual. And so you just let the judge know, I'd like to excuse juror number three and use one of my peremptory challenges. The judge will look to the prosecutor to see of the prosecutor things that you're doing it for a bad reason, like to exclude the person on the basis of their race, the prosecutor doesn't say anything, the person gets excused. The judge won't question your use of the peremptory challenge. It's for the other side to do that. Generally, Professor, how many peremptory challenges does each side get? Each side gets an equal number of peremptory challenges, but it varies based on jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So oftentimes, remember you're seating a jury of 12, and depending on the case, there are typically two alternates, so that means you're looking for 14 people. 
and the alternates, if they're not needed, will be excluded uh, at the end when the jury goes into deliberations. And you're typically given four to six, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in. If there are co-defendants, then, you know, two or more people being charged, then you multiply whatever the number is by the number of defendants. But that also means then that the prosecutor gets an equal number. So both sides are given an equal number of peremptory challenges. You mentioned that there is a bad or there are bad reasons to use their peremptory challenge. But that hasn't always been the case. In fact, that's a relatively new development, perhaps within our lifetimes. What was that development and walk through perhaps the case that that developed it? There's kind of a two-step process to this, too. Remember, you know, we talked earlier about the Civil Rights Act of 1875 that outlawed race-based discrimination. So one would think then that that would have really guaranteed the rights. I mentioned how still there were ways around it. So those ways around trying to limit the number of people of color on juries, that really ran into basically a concerted effort by the federal government to stop it when civil rights laws of the 1960s were enacted. But Batson is the case that started the whole process to say that we're supposed to have juries that truly are reflective of the community and whether you're the prosecutor, which was in the Batson case, and then subsequently applied to the defense as well, you can't use your peremptory challenges to defeat having a representative jury. Maybe we can talk quickly through the Batson case. If I'm remembering correctly, Batson was charged with burglary. In his case, there were four peremptory exclusions for black jurors. Is that correct? That's right. Am I right? It was a 7-2 decision. And and how did the, the opinion come down? The opinion came down that said that you can't exclude jurors on the basis of race, and then they set up what the process is. So that if a prosecutor uses a peremptory challenge to exclude someone who's African-American, if the defense believes that it's racially motivated, the defense has to then make the case, at least a prima facie case, that it was racially motivated, then the prosecutor gets a chance to rebut that. They rebut it by stating a reason that's supposed to be facially valid, so it can't be due to the person's race, and then the court has to decide. But the standard that was established in Batson sets a really low bar for prosecutors to pass, because when they give the reason, it doesn't have to be a persuasive reason or even a plausible reason. It's just enough if it's what is known as facially valid reason. I want to dig just a little bit deeper in what you're describing as perhaps a weakness to the Batson test or perhaps a flaw in the Batson test. I'm not sure how you would characterize it, but essentially what you're saying, am I right, is that according to the Supreme Court, you just need an excuse. And since peremptory challenges can be for anything as as minor as, you know, this juror gave me a weird feeling Well, it's not too hard to come up with an excuse that's that flimsy. That is definitely both the defect, uh, actually a bigger than a flaw of the Batson decision. When they set the bar to say it doesn't have to be persuasive or even plausible 
just have facial validity. So you'll have prosecutors who will strike a juror saying, well, I'm striking them because they don't appear to be listening very well, or they look like they're listening too intently, or the person was frowning, or the person was smiling, or the person is too young, or the person is too old, or the person isn't educated enough, or the person has too much education. And I think the last time I remember seeing something be exposed was in the early 2000s, there were still some prosecutors' offices that had manuals on, you know, how to avoid having a judge say that you are excluding a juror based on their race. Oh, gosh, I've seen a tape, one of the maybe one of the notorious examples where perhaps a DOJ employee or another prosecutor was was doing a video conference or a recorded conference saying, look, just, you know, when you have a black juror, write down something. You don't want someone from that part of town or their child is of a similar age. Just begin asking questions and then write down an excuse. That's right. It sets this really low bar. And then you have people who take oaths to uphold the law and they're training young prosecutors basically how to violate the law, lie to the court, all with the belief that they'll have a better chance of getting a conviction if they have jury that is all white when you have a defendant who's African-American. Well, unfortunately, it seems like these excuses that are often ridiculous on their face are good enough to, to pass muster when it comes to the Batson test. But fortunately for us, we have an ethics expert with us. Is there an ethical question, whether it's for the prosecutor selecting the jury, or I'd like to talk to you as well about these advocates who are making manuals or, in a sense, trying to teach others how to skirt the rule. They're engaging in conduct that's prejudicial to the administration of justice. And that's a violation of an American Bar Association model rule of professional conduct. And every state models its ethical rules after the ABA model rules. And so every jurisdiction has this provision that you can't act in a way that's prejudicial to the administration of justice. And that's rule 8.4? Yeah, it's 8.4D. The ABA in more recent years adopted another provision, it's model rule 8.4G, and that prohibits a lawyer from engaging in conduct that the lawyer knows or reasonably should know is harassment or discrimination on the basis of race. But even with the ethics rule 8.4G, there's a comment to that ethics rule that says that if a prosecutor is found to have committed a Batson violation, which is really using a peremptory challenge in a discriminatory way, that by itself would not be a violation of the ethics rule. So, so there's a Batson carve-out. It definitely is. And I've been critical of that, as has, you know, I think most people who teach legal ethics have been critical of that as well. Why do you think that made it into the rules or into the notes? Well, it made it into the rules because of the following argument. The argument was that if judges knew if they found that a prosecutor committed a Batson violation, that the prosecutor would face ethics discipline for that violation, that judges might be more reluctant 
to find Batson violations. It unfortunately is kind of an argument that won the day with the ABA, and they went ahead because they wanted to not undercut Batson by having this ethics rule. There's another ethics rule, though, that I think is really important for us to think about when a prosecutor gives a fake reason for excluding a juror, and that's an obligation that they have of candor toward the tribunal. Basically, you can't lie to the court. And so every time a prosecutor gives a fake reason for excluding an African-American juror, they're lying to the court and they're violating that ethics rule. So while Batson can allow a prosecutor or a defense attorney even to make an argument that's on its face perhaps ridiculous, the ethics rules may have a little more to say about it. That's right. The ethics rules are saying that it's a violation when you do that, when you give the fake reason, both in terms of prejudicial to the administration of justice and then also the candor to the tribunal. One thing that we should note is in order to make an argument of this type of ethical violation, you may need some supporting evidence. And in many of these cases, the judges on the on the matter at hand are are relatively sympathetic even to some of these outlandish excuses. I heard Professor Brian Stevenson from NYU talking about how he saw a case where a juror was excluded because he was a member of a Masonic order. And the prosecutor said, well, I don't like to have jurors from Masonic orders because they have their own rules. Well, they brought the juror up and he said, no, I'm actually a brick mason. I'm a mason, not a Masonic order member. And the judge said, well, that's fine anyway. Yeah, it is distressing that these things still keep on going on and that there are judges who are uh, so inclined to give free passes. I will point out that when you have a good trial judge, they won't do something like that. And they will not give the prosecutor a free pass. I believe you use the language prejudicial to the administration of justice. That's right. The word prejudicial is right in there. Is there is there something unethical about perhaps knowingly assigning someone you believe to be bigoted or racist to the jury pool? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Getting somebody or specifically trying to get somebody who is racist, say, into the jury pool because you think that that's going to help your case. I would say that also would fit being prejudicial to the administration of justice because you're basically interfering with the fair administration of justice by trying to get it tilted. Now, you know, I will say that both prosecutors and defense lawyers will say that when they're picking juries, they're trying to pick jurors that are going to be more receptive to their case. And so the question about a fair jury, the only thing better than a fair jury is one that is going to be sympathetic to your side, which is, you know, whether you're the prosecutor or the defense lawyer. So there is a little bit of that that goes on in the jury selection process all the time. I was listening to some some interviews of prosecutors saying when they were talking about peremptory challenges based on race, uh, one prosecutor was saying, do I think it's great as a citizen? No, but as a prosecutor, if I think it would help, of course, why wouldn't I? Yeah, I know. I mean, there's this dissidence, and especially with the prosecutor, where 
we hear prosecutors referred to as ministers of justice and where they should be focused on seeing that there's procedural justice for the accused and not just focusing on getting a conviction, but in reality, too many are focused on getting a conviction. In, in fact, you know, there's stories of certain prosecutors' offices where the win-loss records of prosecutors are prominently displayed and there's a mentality of doing whatever it takes to win. A quick break for those who are listening for CLE, MCLE credit. The code for this interview is 2299909. That's 2299909. And now back to the interview. We talked a little bit about Rule 8.4D and, and Rule 8.4G, where that you know, in the states where that's implemented. Are there different rules and obligations that would apply to prosecutors that may not apply to defense counsel? Yes, there is another ethics rule. It's Rule 3.8, which talks about the responsibilities of prosecutors. Nothing in that particular rule other than in a comment would really apply to the jury selection area. And the one thing about comments to the ethics rules is that you can't base an ethics violation on somebody doing something that's contrary to what a comment advises. Uh, And it's in the comment to Rule 3.8 that there's the reference of prosecutors being ministers of justice and an obligation to protect the due process rights of the accused. Oh, interesting. So you can't bring a violation action based on a comment, but you can get protection based on an exclusion from a comment? Yeah, that's interesting. When we talk about comment 5 to rule 8.4 referencing G, yeah, they wrote that in. And that's the only place in the ethics rules where I know that something like that has been done. But you're right, you pointed out this kind of contradiction. They provided a shield, but no sword. I wanted to speak quickly about cases where race is very much at the center of the issue, perhaps whether it's a racially motivated crime or where a specific racial group was targeted. Do the rules change and does Batson or do other jury selection standards apply where race is at at the core of the issue? When race is a core issue in a case, you're given a lot more latitude to question jurors about race and racial attitudes. When it's not a core issue, oftentimes judges will try to steer both the prosecution and the defense away from going too much into what might be implicit biases. But it's actually those cases where maybe the only racial issue is the race of the accused and the race of the victim, where I think it's very important to try to get at and surface what might be certain biases that some jurors might have. How do you mean? Could you give an example? Yeah, I think the best example I have relies on work that different social scientists have done and psychologists have done where they've taken a look using mock jurors and just asking a question such as, uh, in this case, the defendant is black. 
What attitudes do you have toward people who are Black or African American? Or in this case, there's a question of how the police interacted with the defendant, and the defendant is Black. Do you think police treat individuals who are African American the same way they treat people who are white? Just asking questions like that will lead to the jurors being self-aware that they may have some kind of implicit bias. So asking these kind of race-relevant questions will help make jurors aware of their biases. And it's even more important, the studies have shown, where race is not an obvious issue. And it's less important where race is really front and center in the case. Professor, we spoke in depth about how the Batson test has perhaps a fatal flaw, but have there been examples, and maybe you could share you know, a recent Supreme Court case of where Batson actually led to uh, an important case being overturned. I think the case you're referring to is Foster versus Chapman. And it's a case in which a prosecutor used all of his peremptory strikes, and he had four of them, to get an all-white jury that ended up convicting the accused, who was African-American. And he used the four strikes against the only four members of the jury veneer or panel. That's the group of prospective jurors. And he gave race-neutral reasons that the judge accepted. But after the case was over and appeals were done, the defense used the Georgia Open Records Law, and they obtained a copy of the prosecutor's file. And in that file, it showed that he had highlighted each of the African-American members of the jury veneer's name, and he wrote black next to it, and he made notes about his intent to strike all of them. In fact, he definitely was planning on striking three of them, and he made a note next to the fourth person that if it came down to him having to pick one of the black jurors, this would be the one he would pick. That is, if he had to use his peremptory on somebody who was white for some other reason. And that went totally in the face of these race-neutral reasons that he gave because he went into that trial planning on striking all the African-Americans if he could, and that was contrary to what he said. Now, the Supreme Court fortunately recognized that, yes, this is a Batson violation, but it was only proven by the fact that they had his notes. Because without those notes, I'm totally convinced the Supreme Court wouldn't have even listened to the case. They would have just let the conviction stand because that's what happens with most appeals based on Batson. Well, I guess that gives a modicum of comfort that in a case where even the flimsy argument that's suggested is shown to be false, that the courts will step in and overturn. Yeah, that's right. And also at the state level, I've seen certain panels of appellate judges scrutinize the record more closely than others. You know, it's no coincidence that those have generally been more diverse panels of appellate judges that have taken a sharper eye towards trying to have Matson mean something. Today we've been speaking about the ethical implications. I'm afraid of the answer, but have there been any examples of successful ethical 
charges, ethical cases against lawyers for racially motivated jury selection? None that I'm aware of. There are instances of Batson violations. For example, in the Foster case we were just talking about, if that prosecutor received any discipline, it would have been private discipline because he didn't get any public discipline. Professor, in order to end on a slightly more upbeat note, what suggestions do you have? How can we make the judicial system more ethical or, you know, this type of violation less attractive? Well, I think the most upbeat thing I could say is that in 2018, the state of Washington adopted a new rule. Now, remember, Batson is a U.S. constitutional rule, but it leaves it up to states. You know, they could enact rules or laws. And in Washington, the state of Washington, they adopted what's known as the objective observer standard. And that is, if an objective observer would view race or ethnicity as a factor for the peremptory strike, then the court won't admit it. So this objective standard is much better than the standard in Batson. Other things that are being done that I think should be done more aggressively is make sure that you have a jury veneer that's representative of the community. So if a certain portion of the population is comprised of people of color, have that representation in the jury veneer itself. That's necessary to end up having diverse juries. Another recommendation is maybe have some kind of preemptory inclusion. So instead of, say, you have four preemptory strikes, maybe you have a combination of four preemptory strikes and inclusions. So either side could designate somebody that unless they could be struck for cause, they would be on the jury. And you could use your preemptory inclusions for that. And then finally, uh, we really need to collect a lot more data on the composition of jury veneers and the use of, of preemptory strikes. And I guess going to the ethics issue and disciplinary authorities need to take a look at this and see it as an issue that they also need to address ethically because unless there's some consequence for continuing to exclude people on the basis of race from juries, it's going to continue, whether it's the prosecution, which happens most of the time, but occasionally the defense does it as well. Professor Peter Joy, thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.